There can be no reconciliation without forgiveness, and forgiveness is not an option. There are times I wish it was. But I, of course, I always want someone to forgive me, right? That shouldn't be non-optional. But my ability to forgive them, that should be optional. That's not what God says. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would turn to Genesis 45, um, we're going to finish up our, our um, study of Joseph and Jacob today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be in Mark. Hopefully you all received um, a book. Brother Doug's been passing them out. And uh, if you haven't, there's some large print up there for people my age and some small print for those of you that are significantly younger. You know, relationships are the most important things in life. As a matter of fact, Jesus said the first great commandment was what? You shall love the... Lord your God, the vertical relationship. And the second, the horizontal relationship, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Have you discovered that it's easier to love God than love people? <laughs> yes. So we're to love God first and love people second. And our human craving for relationships is, is often seen in airports. You know, when people walk through the security line and get their luggage and come through passport control, etc. Many times there's family and friends waiting for them. And these, these um, yeah, I'm not going to look. Uh, the re these reunions are pretty sweet, I'm going to look. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, they haven't seen them in a while, sometimes weeks and sometimes months and months and months. And of course, when the kids break through the line and hug grandpa and grandma, we all smile and our hearts go pitter-patter because God designed us to both desire and require human relationships and healthy relationships with other people. Multiple studies have demonstrated that people in good relationships both live longer and live better than people that are socially isolated. And today we're really going to look at this family reunion that takes place between Joseph and his brothers and hopefully learn the lessons that God has had for us. If you just look at a little historical context, about 15 years ago, Joseph was sold. Um, he's been sold as a slave. Actually, it's a little bit longer than that. It's probably closer to 22. He's been sold as a slave into Egypt by his own brothers. And God, of course, arranged him through that 13-year period from age 17 to age 30 to move through being a slave, thrown into prison, false accusations, ultimately became the prime minister. God arranged for him to go from prison to prime minister in about a two-hour period. And the whole purpose was to save Egypt and the entire region from a multi-year famine. So Joseph's ten brothers who live in Canaan come to Egypt to buy food because Canaan's also impacted by the famine. Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. His goal is to bring about a reconciliation with this family that is fractured. And their past has really destroyed and broken their relationships. There's a lot of secrets in this family. By the way, dysfunctional families have lots and lots of secrets. And Jacob's family has lots and lots of secrets, and none of them are good. So Joseph, the last couple of weeks we've seen, has been testing his brothers to ascertain, to diagnose the spiritual state of their hearts, 
to bring them to the point of repentance. He's treated them harshly and he's treated them kindly so that he can observe how they respond and understanding what God has been doing in their life. It's also given them the opportunity to reflect on their bad behavior when they sold them into slavery. So jo Joseph last week designs a final test to determine his brother's heart state. He makes arrangements for them to have the opportunity to abandon their youngest brother, Benjamin, as a slave while they go back home to Canaan. Well, that's exactly what they did with him 22 years before they sold him as a slave. He wants to find out whether they're going to stay together as a family or whether they're going to abandon brother uh, Benjamin and go back home to Jacob, dad. So brother Judah last week, as you know, number four brother, makes an impassioned plea to Joseph for mercy. He doesn't know it's Joseph. He thinks it's the ruler of Egypt, but he says... If I don't bring Benjamin back, and I promised Dad I'd bring him back, my father will die. So I will stay here as a slave to you for the rest of my life if you will let Benjamin go back to my dad in Canaan. So Joseph knows now that this family has repented. These ten brothers have repented from the evil of selling him into slavery. And last week we talked about repentance being turning away from evil and turning to God, literally walking away from evil like they told you to do in kindergarten, and walking toward God. It's a physical activity and spiritual directionality. So the brothers have repented, and so now Joseph can move toward reconciliation. Repentance always has to precede reconciliation. Reconciliation means that two parties that have been at war are now at peace. Conciliation is the act of stopping someone from being angry. We have a lot of people in our culture that are angry. Would you agree with that? And they may say they're not angry, but when you watch what they post on social media, you are persuaded that, yeah, they're really pretty angry. At least their words seem to indicate that. So reconciliation, another word for that is atonement. Interestingly enough, the Old Testament word atonement it literally means a condition without tension. A condition without tension. You've all been around people, been in their homes, been around their families, and you're aware when there's tension in that family, tension in the relationships. Reconciliation means a condition without tension. Now, this is not merely a truce. This is not merely a cessation of conflict. This is not merely an absence of animosity or temporary peace. It's like the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, we translate peace. It literally means much more than just an absence of conflict. It means wellness and wholeness and completeness and tranquility in all areas of life. So reconciliation is really a positive peace, um, not just an absence of conflict. And the path of reconciliation runs through the river of forgiveness. The path of reconciliation runs through the river of forgiveness, which is both modeled and commanded by Jesus himself. It's modeled in Romans 5.8, one of your, my favorite verses, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that what? While we were yet sinners, we were still at war with him, we were still in animosity toward him, Christ died for us. And therefore, we are commanded in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. And my, the word I hate most in this verse is the second word. I could justify a lot of my behavior. You just take out the second word. It says, let all, 
It doesn't say let some. It says let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. You know, he's kind of empty in the dictionary there, all that stuff. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. And positively be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. That is not a suggestion, that's a command. And the standard of forgiveness is just as Christ also has forgiven you. So how Christ forgave us is the model for how we are to forgive others. So Joseph now knows that his brothers have repented. He's going to reveal his identity to them so that their relationship can be reconciled. Verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Here's the principle. We must choose to forgive before reconciliation is possible. We must choose to forgive before reconciliation is possible. Now, the text tells us that after Judah made his plea, jo or J Joseph then commands everybody to go off. And he's saying, all the Egyptian servants and, and folks that wait on me, I want you to leave the room because this past history between Joseph and his brothers was not for the Egyptians to know. This was a family matter. This was a private matter. There's a lot of bad history here. And by the way, sin should be revealed only on a need-to-know basis. Sin should only be revealed to those who need to know. The Egyptians didn't need to know. If you make private sin public, it makes restoration much more difficult after repentance. So there's always going to be sin in the church. The reality is no one really needs to know about that except who? The people that are directly involved in the process. That's why gossip is so lethal because it poisons the pond that everybody's got to swim in. So if there's confession and repentance, it should be only between the people who need to know so that when restoration takes place, no one else has a bunch of bad memories. So Joseph says, the Egyptians don't know anything about the fact that I got sold into slavery. I'm not going to tell them now because I want them to move to Egypt. And the Egyptians are going to think they're a bunch of bad people if they know they sold me, the prime minister, into slavery. Right? So he's protecting his brothers. This is a private family meeting. It's also very emotional. Joseph says he's weeping so loudly that his servants hear, even though they're outside the room. And I can't help but wonder, what were Joseph's brothers thinking? He says, I am Joseph. Actually, he starts weeping before he says, I am Joseph. Now, you're them. This guy has put you in prison. He's also given you a state dinner. I mean, he's treated you well, and he's also made some demands, bring your brother back, etc. Judah has just said, I will be a slave to you if you let Brother Benjamin go home. And they're waiting for what he's going to say, and he starts to weep. And you're thinking, okay, is he going to accept Judah's offer to be a slave? We'll never see Judah again. Or is he going to say, not going to work, I'm going to keep Benjamin a slave? And he speaks to them in Hebrew. First time. He's been speaking to them through an interpreter for the last year. He speaks to them in Hebrew, and he tells them that he's his long-lost brother Joseph. 
And from their perspective, this has got to be the very worst news possible. Their kid brother, who they sold into slavery and probably in early death at 17, is now the prime minister. Uh huh. Yeah, I can only imagine. It says that they were so dismayed, it means they were terrified. It literally translates terrified. The word terrified is used to describe the feeling a group of soldiers who are chasing an enemy, and the enemy is on the retreat. They're running away from you until they turn around and start to attack and kill you. That's terrified. It's life and death. I mean, these guys, if they could put the pins on, they really needed them right here. They're terrified so much that it says they're speechless. If you read this chapter in, verse, in chapter 45, the first 15 verses, Joseph does all the talking. The brothers say nothing. I can imagine they would say nothing. I mean, what are they going to say? They don't know if this guy's going to put him in prison or whatever it happens to be. But Joseph speaks to them kindly instead of punishing. He asks them about their father, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Here's the principle. When we see life from God's perspective and surrender ourselves to his plan, then we can forgive those who sin against us. When we see life from God's perspective and surrender ourselves to his plan, then we can forgive those who sins against us. So Joseph tells them, don't be grieved, don't be angry, don't blame yourselves because of your sin of selling me as a slave. In essence, he says, you sold me here to die, but God sent me here to save lives, including your life. So you intended evil, God made it good. You planned death for me by selling me as a slave. God produced life. You wanted to destroy, and God took your plan to destroy and turned it into salvation. Years later, Jacob has died, and after father Jacob dies, the brothers come back to Joseph, and they are terrified he's going to exact retribution again. And if you look at one of the most famous verses in Genesis, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph comes back to them and reassures them in Genesis 50, 20, and he says, As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring this present result, to bring preserve many people alive. This is the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28, right? God causes all things, right, to work together for good. That's the Old Testament version. The reality is God can and God does bring good out of evil routinely. Now, this is not an excuse or an argument to sin more so that there is going to be more grace but it does describe the sovereignty of God over evil. 
God is not the author of evil. God does not approve of evil. But God allows evil. You know how I know that? You're still here. I'm still here. God obviously allows evil because if he didn't, we wouldn't exist at this point in time. And even more so, God uses evil to accomplish his eternal purposes. Even though God hates sin, and he does, he will even use sin to bring glory to himself and good for his people. Because Scripture says he does all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, that's not an excuse for us to sin, but it talks about the sovereignty of God, that these brothers sinned against Joseph, and God took that and produced life. Joseph is able to overcome evil with good because he believes in the sovereignty of God. He sees his slavery, 13 years of it, in imprisonment and false accusations, He sees all the pain that he went through for 13 years from age 17 to 30 from God's perspective. And he trusts God's plan even when he doesn't understand it. You can't tell me at 17 when he went to work as a slave for Potiphar or when he got thrown in the jail that he knew he was going to be prime minister. He was walking by faith. And when you're in prison, you're walking by faith because you don't have a whole lot of sight there, right? false accusations for doing good. He had every reason to become bitter and say, God, I don't understand it. And because I don't understand it, to heck with you. I'm going to do it my way. He surrendered himself to God's plan, even when he didn't understand it because he was walking by faith. And Joseph is, every time you see him, he's trusting God regardless of his circumstances. He's a slave in Potiphar's house. It says he's faithful. God was with him. Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce him. He resisted temptation. He unrighteously and unlawfully gets thrown into prison for doing what's right. God was with him. He interprets the dream of the butler and the baker and gives God the credit. He stands before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, Hey, I hear you're a pretty sharp guy. You can interpret dreams. He says, It's not in me. God will give Pharaoh the answer he wants to give. This guy has God front and center in his life regardless of his situation. And that is a phenomenal model for us. So by this time, when Joseph's talking to his brothers, he's been figured out. He's figured out that God's plan was to send him into Egypt to prepare the land for the coming famine and to save his family. Remember, we've had five years or seven years of abundance. That's gone. We're now two years into the famine, and there's five years to go. No one else knows there's five years except Joseph, and Pharaoh, because obviously Joseph told Pharaoh. So what's interesting is you think, wow, they're going to have this reunion and Joseph's going to forgive them. Joseph forgave his brothers years ago. Years ago. He had a God-centered attitude. I'm persuaded he forgave him in prison. He forgave him as a slave. He didn't forgive him at this point. He forgave them long before this. He saw how God had used his brother's bad behavior to accomplish his perfect plan. Now that's walking by faith because you have people that have sinned against you this week, haven't you? Say yes. And you've sinned against people this week. Say yes. God is going to turn that evil into good and you do not understand how he's going to do it. Nor do we understand when he's going to do it. But God is sovereign, and he causes all things to work together for good, 
even things that people intend against you for harm, God will turn into good. I don't know how and I don't know when because he's God and we're not. But he does. And that's why he says, the just shall live by faith and without faith it's impossible to please him. Have you ever thought about that if Joseph had been bitter or angry at his brothers, he never would have got appointed prime minister? I wouldn't have. If he wasn't walking with God as a slave, he certainly was not going to walk with God as a prime minister. He never would have been in a position to bring his family to repentance and reconciliation. And as we said, there can be no reconciliation without forgiveness, and forgiveness is not an option. There are times I wish it was. But I, of course, I always want someone to forgive me. Right? That shouldn't be non-optional. But my ability to forgive them, that should be optional. That's not what God says. Matthew 5, 43-45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. And if you don't think God loves California, he sends rain. And it's on the righteous and the unrighteous, right? And of course, we always think, well, I'm the righteous and they are the unrighteous. We don't always behave righteously either. God gives us mercy and the snowpack is evidence. John Stone, thank you for keeping that in front of us. He literally showers blessings on those who love him, and he showers blessings on those who hate him. The same. While he was on the cross, Jesus modeled forgiveness for us when he prayed for those who were killing him. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Pretty good prayer. When someone is persecuting you, pretty good prayer. Maybe especially when they're a family member. Real good person. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness means to unreservedly give up, to completely let go of any desire to punish. Forgiveness means I will give up my right to hurt you for hurting me. It means a complete and total release from a prior obligation. It means to set someone free from a prior debt. When someone sins against you, they owe you a debt. When you sin against them, you owe them a debt. Forgiveness is a cancellation of that debt. That's why Jesus Christ, his last words on the cross were tetelestai, which is what? Paid in full. Your sin debt and my sin debt was paid to God the Father by the death of Jesus Christ the Son, paid in full, no other payment. That set us free from the penalty of sin. So it literally means to pardon, to set free from our prior debt. It means to cancel that debt. It means to erase the record of a wrongdoing. To dismiss legal charges against someone. I'll never forget, I had a driving uh, charge as a 16-year-old, and the judge said, if you behave yourself for six months, I'll take it off the record. And I thought about it every day for six months, and then she took it off the record. I got some more driving problems, but, you know, it was off the record. I didn't deserve it. I was given grace. Forgiveness, interesting, really is comprised of two words, force and give. To forgive is to give up the right to enforce justice. 
It's to give up the right to enforce justice. When God forgives us, he releases us from the penalty of death that sin imposes on us. We deserve to die. Because at the cross, Jesus Christ paid that debt to God. So God gives up the right to enforce justice on us because he's already enforced divine justice on Jesus, right? Jesus got justice, we got mercy. And Jesus says, you behave like God and release the people who owe you. That's forgiveness, to cancel a debt they owe you. And you go, well, that's not fair. No kidding. Your sin isn't fair either. But we expect God to forgive us. We think we deserve it. We deserve death. We have been given grace, and God says, you extend that forgiveness, that set free from the debt owed to your brothers and sisters and to your enemies. Forgiveness is a commitment, it's not an emotion. Forgiveness chooses to free the wrongdoer from the penalty of their wrongdoing. When Joseph forgave his brothers, he released them from any justice or retribution that he could have justly meted out to them. They deserve justice, he gave them mercy. However, forgiveness also benefits you and I. Forgiveness frees the one who has been wronged. Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever thought about how to get even? I have spent hours, especially as a teenager, it's like, I can make you pay and I'm going to find the most creative way to inflict the maximum pain. And that is a useless exercise because what it does to your soul is make you bitter and nasty and self-righteous and it separates you from God and other people. But it frees you from resentment and revenge. So forgiveness not only releases the debt for them, but it frees you from hate and bitterness and resentment. And many, many times, my friends, forgiveness is something that is done over and over and over and over again because our self-righteousness wants to hold them hostage for what they did to me. And God doesn't do that. God forgives us once for all. So if there's going to be reconciliation, it means that both parties have agreed with God and have agreed with each other about the sin that separated them. The offender, the one who sinned, turns away from their sin in repentance and humbly seeks to be released from the debt they owe the offended one. And the one who is offended releases their right to enforce justice on the offender. Now reconciliation can occur. And that's what's happening right here, verse 9. Hurry and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you and there are still five years of famine to come. And you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it's my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all the splendor of Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother's Benjamin neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Then he kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Here's the principle. Forgiveness sets people free from the sin debt they owe us, so that our relationship can be restored. 
Forgiveness sets people free from the sin debt they owe us so that our relationship can be restored. How often do you incur a sin debt against other people? Every day you sin, yes? When you sin, you incur a debt. That's why we confess. We go to God and we say, Lord, I've sinned on the blood of Jesus Christ who's paid for that sin. I claim forgiveness and I ask for forgiveness. Fill me with you so that I would not do that again. How often do you confess to your spouse or to your children that you've screwed up and you ask their forgiveness? The more you do that, the shorter accounts you keep and the freer you become. So Joseph not only forgives them, here's what's astonishing to me, he wants to fellowship with them. He doesn't want to forgive them and forget them, he wants to forgive them and fellowship with them. He says, you're going to move down here with me. The purpose of forgiveness is the restoration of a broken relationship. That's the whole point of forgiveness. It's to restore a relationship because sin separates us. So Joseph doesn't even mention the 13 years of suffering that he faced. He doesn't say, you schmucks sold me into slavery, and I spent 13 years and a couple of them in prison. You can't believe. I'm going to do-do-do-do-do, but I'll be good and I'm not going to do it. He doesn't even mention it. He views his suffering at their hand as part of God's plan to prepare him to become the prime minister so that he can minister life and not death. That's a remarkable re reframing of suffering. He views his suffering as part of God's plan to prepare him. So how do we view when people sin against us? How do we view our suffering? Most of the time, we can only think of one thing. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. He views it as part of God's training plan for his life. That's remarkable maturity. And this guy's, you know, like 38 right now. He doesn't beat his family up over their past sins. He doesn't forgive and forget them. He wants to bring his entire family in Egypt so they can be near him so he can provide for them. This is like Jesus. I am amazed that Jesus forgives us from our sin. I'm even more amazed the reason he forgives us. He forgives us because he wants to fellowship with us. He wants an intimate love relationship with us, and so he was willing to shed his own blood to take care of the sin problem that separated us because he wants to relate with us. And I look in the mirror and I'm going, why do you want to have a relationship with me? I don't get it. That's why love is so amazing. We are completely undeserving of it. Jesus not only wants to have a fellowship with us on earth, the whole point is so we can spend together forever in heaven with him face to face. Is that not amazing? Genuine forgiveness transforms relationships. The last six words or seven words of verse 15 speak volumes, and it says almost nothing. It says, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. Can you imagine that conversation? Wonder what they were talking about. I mean, we can surmise that there was a lot of confession of sin and a lot of Forgiveness, there must have been a lot of tears as well as a lot of truth. I mean, they have 22 years of broken relationship. There's a lot of catching up to do. And we see this today. You know, we have siblings separated from birth, and they do DNA tests, and 
they find their, their long-lost sibling together, decades, decades of separation, and there's a lot of catching up to do, right? I mean, what have you been doing your whole life? And so that's what's going on here, the beginning of a new relationship. After this reunion, reconciliation, Joseph sends him back to get dad, verse 25. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. Indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But Jacob was stunned and did not believe them. When they told him all the words that Joseph had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Transparent and truthful communication creates trust which is the foundation of healthy relationships. Joseph's brothers had to confess to their father, Jacob, that they had been lying to him for 22 years. Can you imagine that conversation? Must have been pretty difficult. Dad, Joseph is alive. Really? I thought you told me you got killed by a wild beast. Well, not really, Dad. We've been lying to you for 22 years. He's very much alive. So that must have been a very difficult conversation. But you cannot have reconciliation without truth and without honesty. Reconciliation always demands truth. Obviously, Jacob, Joseph had not been killed by a wild beast. The truth is they had sold him as a slave into Egypt. The truth is they lied to their dad about it for the last 22 years because they were jealous and angry. The truth was God had made Joseph ruler over the land, and he was calling his dad Jacob and the family to come and leave Canaan and move back to Egypt. The truth was there were five more years of famine, and if they did not move, they would all die. So reconciliation is always based on truth. Facing the truth, by the way, can motivate us to make the hard decisions we would not make otherwise. Israel did not want to leave Canaan, but now he's willing. Chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. Here's the principle. God guides us as we follow him by faith. Life's path is seldom smooth or straight, but our guide always leads us in the right way. God guides us as we follow him by faith. Life's path is seldom smooth or straight, but our, God always, our guide always leads us in the right way. So Jacob is going down to, to uh, Egypt. And he renews his vow of loyalty and allegiance to El Shaddai, God Almighty. El Shaddai, God Almighty, had first appeared to Jacob 20, 53 years ago in Bethel when he was fleeing from Esau. He was 77 years old then. He's 130 now, so it's 53 years ago. And this same God, El Shaddai, has been faithful to Jacob year in, year out, decade in, decade out. And Jacob now worships God by building an altar and offering a sacrifice. Sacrifice was the way a worshiper declared the worth of God or the value of one being worshipped. Now, here's what's important. Sacrifice is giving up something valuable in exchange for something you value even more. We tell God how much we value Him by what we're willing to give up to exalt Him. 
If your God is just a God that you worship when it's convenient, you don't value him very much. Jacob is recentering his life around God. He is submitting himself to God by sacrificing to God. Of course, today we don't offer animal sacrifices to declare God's value. Jesus Christ has already offered himself as our substitute sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins, but we're called to make a sacrifice. What is your sacrifice that God calls you to make today? What are you supposed to put on the altar? Yourself. Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present what? Your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Jesus made the supreme sacrifice for our sin by laying down his life for us, so we should worship him by valuing him above everything else. And we worship God when we literally surrender our lives to him because we value him more than we value anything else. So when we come to God to worship him, how many of you worship God? How many worship God every day? Of course you do. When you come and you declare his worth and you worship him and you pray and you read his word and you make petition to him and you give him thanksgiving, you're worshiping it, whether that's individually or you declare his worth on Sunday morning collectively, what you're doing is you're saying, God, you are worth more than anything in my life. And I'm going to sacrifice my will to your will. Because I would rather have you than my will. I'd rather have your plan than my plan. I'd rather have your way than my way. You alone are worthy of my loving obedience. So God responds to Jacob's commitment, and he confirms his plans for Jacob. He says, Jacob, don't fear going into Egypt, because I'm going to make your family a great nation there. Jacob, you don't need to fear leaving Canaan, because what does it say? I will be with you in Egypt, and I'm also going to bring you out of Egypt in the future. You know, we look at this and we go, well, what's the big deal? In that era, people thought that their gods were local. God is the God of Canaan. But is this God the God of Egypt too? Uh-huh. The God of the Bible is the God Almighty, the God over all things, over all people, all places, all times. In fact, God was going to leave lead Jacob's family to Egypt, and he planned them to remain there for 400 years. And he was going to grow this family from 70 people to 2 million people. And you're going to find out, as you read ahead in Exodus, they multiplied and grew, and the Egyptians began to fear them. They were afraid that Israel would go strong enough to actually take over the country. So they made slaves out of them, beat them, starved them, murdered them. Here's the hard part. God was with his people, even when they were slaves. God was with his people, even when their lives were filled with pain and hardship and suffering and slavery. God was with his people, even when Pharaoh commanded that all their male babies were to be killed. God was with his people, even when they were slaves, for more than a century. And you go, I don't understand God. God used their slavery. God did not author the slavery. God hates slavery. God used the Egyptians' evil slavery to strengthen their faith in God. 
God used the Egyptians' evil slavery to motivate them to follow Moses, to leave Egypt, and cross a wilderness that was thought to be impassable. Question. If the nation's Israel life had been wonderful in Israel, I mean in Egypt, I mean wonderful, I mean it's all milk and honey in Egypt, do you think they'd been willing to leave it for a land of Canaan that they'd never seen? Do you think they'd been willing to leave it to cross a wilderness that was you could kill you? God allowed the pain of Egypt to motivate them to leave the promised land. Now looking out, I don't like to say this, but I think it's very true. I think today God does the same thing. I think God allows in his loving mercy our bodies to age and ache and suffer and pain as we get older so that we will look forward to getting out of here and going to heaven. How, you know, it's fascinating to me how many people get serious about God the closer they get to death. God in his mercy says, I'm going to let this body fall apart so you are aware that this life is not where it's at. You are made for eternity and you need to start thinking and acting like it and valuing eternity more than here. So this pain in this life is a blessing. The God of Jacob is still our God today. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And wherever you are right now, God is. Wherever you're going tomorrow, God is. You may be headed into Egypt. You may be. God's going to go with you there. Matter of fact, God is on the way to Egypt and he's already there waiting for you. In many ways, this life on this earth is kind of like Egypt. It's kind of slavery. It's painful. And for the Christian, earth is a foreign land. This ain't home. The good news is, like Jacob, we can rest in God's promise that he will always be with us. And even better, we can count on the fact that he's prepared an eternal dwelling place for us called heaven. Jacob is leaving Canaan, and he's moving into Egypt. He doesn't know what it's going to bring, but he knows that God has called him, and he knows that his son is waiting for him. The message for us is, like Jacob, keep following the God who leads you. You know, when you look at Jacob's life, you realize he was a slow learner. A real slow learner. Decades and decades of almost no progress. And I look in the mirror and I'm going, man, I resemble that. He's a message, and yet God named the nation who was going to pre present the Messiah to the world after this man, Israel. Remarkable grace. And like Joseph, we are to forgive those who have wronged us. We are not to harbor bitterness. If you want an exercise that will probably be painful, but ultimately very useful, make a list of people on your to-forgive list. I know you have a to-do list. Well, build a to-forgive list, because you probably got it. Anytime there's unfinished business, it's like friction in your life. It's like driving with a flat tire. It slows you down. It creates friction. It creates pain. It creates heat. It creates loss. Make a list of people you need to forgive. Make a list of people who need to forgive you. Start to pray for them. Every day, pray for them because Jesus died for them too. They don't deserve your forgiveness. 
you don't deserve God's forgiveness either. So we who have been forgiven have been called to extend forgiveness because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us to do it, and we have been forgiven by Jesus Christ himself. Forgiveness is pure grace. And this week, we're called to put God's grace on display. Here's the summary. Genesis 45 to 46, verse 45, verse 1 to 3. We must choose to forgive before reconciliation is possible. Forgiveness is a choice, and it has to precede reconciliation. When we see life from God's perspective, that takes faith, and surrender ourselves to his plan, that's an act of the will, we can forgive those who sin against us. Number three, forgiveness sets people free from the sin that they owe us so that a relationship can be restored. Number four, transparent and truthful communication creates trust, which is the foundation of healthy relationships. You cannot have forgiveness and, and uh, re reconciliation without truth. And lastly, God guides us as we follow him by faith because life's path is seldom smooth or straight, but our guide always leads us in the right way. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.